Luke chapter 10. Today we are covering a familiar passage of Scripture, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I think that the first part of it, in which this lawyer, also called a scribe, asked Jesus a very important question. I believe that that part of this text is often ignored. And I think if we are really to understand the import and the magnitude of this message that Jesus delivers to us, we have to consider it in the context of that question that this lawyer puts to Jesus. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you even raised up bad men to ask good questions. And I pray, Father, that we would understand the question and the answers that Jesus gives. And I pray, Father, that there would not be a single person in this room who is a part of this congregation of believers. I pray that there wouldn't be a single person who does not conform to your will and obey your commandment. I pray, Father, that on the day that we stand before your judgment seat, every single one of us would inherit the life of your kingdom for all of eternity. Father, we know that we are not justified by our works. And yet we have been created in your Son for good works that are prepared for us to walk in. I pray, Father, that we would truly walk in your commandments. 
walk in those good works. Please help us, O Lord, to understand this passage. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to live obediently. And to that end, I pray that you would pour out according to your great mercy, according to the gift you have already given to us in your Son. Pour out on us today your Holy Spirit. O Lord, there are many of this congregation that are not able to be here today for various reasons. Lord, you know their need. I pray that you would supply it according to your riches and glory in Christ and bring them back to us quickly. I pray, Father, that there would be no disunity in this family. I pray that there would be no lack of love. I pray that we would sacrifice for one another and serve one another and build each other up, and not only one another, but I pray, Father, that your love would overflow from us into our community. In Jesus' name, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. There is a a very good question asked at the beginning of this passage. It's asked by a man who's a bad man. But uh, I am glad for the fact that the Lord would even use a bad man to ask a good question. It's a perennial question. It's a question, it's a common question. It's a question that we must all ask and find the answer to in the scriptures. And that question is, what should you and I do in order to inherit eternal life? What should you do in order to inherit eternal life? I think that because of our upbringing in the church and because of good teaching and a little bit because of some preconceived theological notions, we might misunderstand this lawyer's question and how Jesus answers it. Because if we understand this lawyer to be asking, how can I, right here and now, be justified? How can I, in the immediate, on this earth, now, be saved from the penalty of my sin? Then Jesus' answer doesn't make sense. Not biblical sense. Because He gives to him the law. When this lawyer responds with the law of God, those two twin commandments upon which all of the law and all of the prophets hang, and Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. We need to understand. I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to understand what this man is asking. We need to understand by the term that he uses, inherit, and by Jesus' answer, what he means. So this man, I'll say it now and I'm going to say it again in a little bit, this man is not asking how he might on this earth now be justified. He is asking rather how he may stand before God on the last day and inherit the kingdom, inherit life eternal. He's a bad man. He is duplicitous. He's a hypocrite. He stands up respectfully. Jesus is in the seating posture that was typical to the rabbis. So he stands up respectfully to address Jesus as an authority, all the while he is aiming to make Jesus look bad and himself look good. 
The Bible calls him here a lawyer. That does not mean that he represents people in a court of law. The New Testament lawyer is an expert in the biblical law. Most often he would be called a scribe. But here he is to take on Jesus in a debate with the aim to make Jesus look bad. I wouldn't bet on this man. It doesn't matter if you are taking on Jesus in your field of expertise, you're not going to succeed to make Jesus look bad. You're not going to win any debate or you know, make him look bad in any theological question. So I wouldn't bet on this man. But before I move on, I just want to note really quickly, Jesus does make this man, in a sense, look bad, doesn't he? He makes him look to be a fool. But Jesus himself doesn't look proud or arrogant or even self-promoting or exalting in the answer that he gives. And isn't that incredible? That this guy tries to make Jesus look bad, and he himself is made to look bad, and yet it's not for Christ's promotion. Jesus is made to look brilliant here, but pure. Who is like this? This is a most stunning Savior. But let's move on. This this question that he puts to Jesus, again, is a very common question, but it is so important that we answer, that the Bible answers for us and we understand. He said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, by that term, inherit... I see, I understand that he does not have a present, immediate, here and now justification in mind. Inherit is a future term. He wants to know how he might inherit eternal life on that last day when he stands before God. It's a very important question. We also can come to that conclusion by what Jesus says. Because when Jesus is asked, how doesn't he respond? He doesn't say, what do you mean, what will you do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything to have life. Jesus doesn't say that. Let's answer that question first. That if the lawyer would be asking the justification question, we need to answer it. How must a sinner live in order to be justified, declared righteous by God, saved from the penalty of sin? How must a sinner live in order to be justified here and now before God? There is nothing that we can do. We have no hope in ourselves. There is no moral reformation. There is no baptism in the church. There is no offering you can give. There is no laying down of your life. There is not a single good work or any number of good works, quantity or quality, that you can do in order to be justified before God. Let us be very, very clear on that matter. All a sinner can do is hope in Jesus Christ. Rest all of your faith in Jesus Christ. So how must a sinner live in order to be justified now? All we can do is trust in Christ. There is no life of good works in order to be justified. But how must a justified person live 
in order to be glorified on the last day. Now, I am giving to you, I I realize some deep doctrine, but listen, you must understand this. Your, Your understanding, I believe, of the New Testament and the Christian life and this whole matter of salvation depends on your understanding of these truths. We know that there are different aspects of our salvation. There is justification, which takes place in a moment of time when you put your faith in Christ and God declares the guilty to be righteous. And so we are saved from the penalty of our sin. There is also our sanctification upon our justification in which we are being saved from sin's power continually. We are in this process of being conformed to the person of Jesus. It's a lifelong process. It will be complete at our future glorification when we are finally made righteous like Christ. Perfectly righteous like Christ. So, in a moment of time, for the one who believes, God justifies them. In a future moment of time, at the last day when we are with Christ, we will be glorified and conformed perfectly to Him and to His righteousness. So, we are asking different questions. When we ask, how must a sinner live in order to be justified? And we say there's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can offer to God for his justification. It's a different question from how must a justified person live in order to be glorified on the last day? And I believe that's the question that the lawyer is really asking. How can I inherit eternal life on the last day? How can I be sure that I will enter the kingdom on the last day? That I will be welcomed? And so on. The Bible gives us many answers to this question. Again, this is New Testament basics. So many understand it, but you need to get this. You need to get it, or you'll misunderstand salvation. The Bible says we must endure to the end to be saved. Or we will be lost. And that salvation is referring to glorification. If we want to be, if we want to inherit eternal life on the last day, we must endure to the end. We must be fruit bearing branches abiding in the vine. Or John 15 says we will be cut off, cast away and burnt. Romans 8 says we must suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ. We must walk in the good works which we were created in Christ for. Ephesians 2. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 1. We must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. Colossians 1. We must die with Christ in order to live with Him and endure with Christ in order to reign with Him. 2 Timothy 2. In Hebrews 3, we must hold fast our confidence firm to the end. Hebrews chapter 3. And in many of these passages, I read a little bit of it, but in several other of these passages, the Bible says if you will be saved in the end, if... And it is pointing to us, pointing us to good works, to endurance, to perseverance. If the saints do not persevere in holiness, they are not saints to begin with. We're not talking about losing a justification that we already have. Here's good news for you. 
Here's good news. Listen, your justification is conditional on faith and faith alone. Your glorification is conditional on faith working itself out in love. And how does this then not depend on us? Because your election in eternity past before the foundation of the world does not rest on you whatsoever. It is unconditional. You were chosen by God purely of His sovereign grace. And therefore, you have nothing to fear. God works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. He will keep you blameless at the coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5. God will do it. God will do it. So our justification is not declared on the grounds of our works. Our justification is not declared by our works, but it's proven by our works. And though we will not be glorified on the last day by our works, neither will we be glorified without good works. But God will do it. God will do it. God has regenerated the man who has been justified. We are born to new life. We have the Holy Spirit. We are new creations. This grace that says a man can be saved from the penalty of sin and then live however he please is a cheap grace. It's a powerless grace. Because... How could God, who delivered us from the penalty of sin, not also deliver us from its tyranny? That is what He has done. Well, we've hardly really gotten into our text, so we need to get moving here. So let's get into this. But I hope that this is plain to you. I hope that you can understand the question that this lawyer is putting to Jesus. What does God require of those who will inherit eternal life. Jesus' response to this perennial question is to ask a question. And this is a, this is a constant method of the rabbis. Uh, the running joke goes, uh, question. Why does a rabbi answer a question with a question? Answer. Why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? Anyway, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He's not a rabbi trying to confuse his student. Notice he is putting the lawyer's attention to the source. He's directing him to the source, to the authority. Where the answer is found, the scriptures, which are the, which are the word of God. So this expert in the law responds expertly. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. The man is right. The person who loves God and loves their neighbor will inherit life, eternal life, on the last day. Now, again, Please understand, I'm going to harp on this, I'm going to pound on it so that there's no, could still be confusion, but I want to prevent it as much as I can. God requires a perfection. He does not 
lower his bar. He doesn't lower his standard. He doesn't grade on a curve. He requires a perfection in his law that we cannot meet. And as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, we cannot obey perfectly this side of glory. As long as we are living in this present age and the flesh, the sin principle, sin nature remains in us, it's going to do combat with the Spirit who reigns over us, preventing perfect obedience. So you will not perfectly love God. But don't you love God? Don't you? It's not a perfect obedience, but it is a true obedience that by the Spirit of Christ we render up to God and is genuinely pleasing to Him. That's awesome news. Christians, true Christians, will truly love God. God sees to it. Sin has affected every part of our being, we say. We, we could, in fact, use these terms that the lawyer uses. Sin has affected our hearts, our souls, our strength, and our minds. It's what we call total depravity. Apart from Christ, we are depraved across our entire being. But now, by the salvation of our God, by the Spirit of Christ who reigns over our hearts, every part of our, obe- uh, of our being renders true love to God heart and soul and mind and strength. So perfect obedience is not possible for you in the here and now, but true obedience by the Spirit of the living God is offered up to God. Truly, we love Him with our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. This man desiring to justify himself, he is not, Luke is not using that term, I hate to, throw a wrench in here or add any confusion, but understand Luke is not using this term like Paul does in the New Testament. This man desiring to justify himself means he wants to look good. He wants to save face here. He doesn't want to go away from here everybody thinking, what kind of lawyer is that? But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wants to look good and he thinks that he has the question to do it because he's banking on Jesus answering that he already has all his bases covered. He believes as a Jew that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, teacher, is going to say, love your nation. Love the Jews, no matter who you are. And this man, is he's got his answer planned already. As soon as Jesus says, love your nation, he's going to say something like the rich young ruler, all these I have loved from my youth. That's what he's planning on saying. But he doesn't get a chance because Jesus doesn't answer like he expects him to. Jesus doesn't say, you have all your bases covered and you've excluded everybody from your love that deserves to be excluded from your love. Jesus answers with a parable. Talking about love. But love isn't merely to be debated. In fact, much more is to be seen and it's to be done. And so Jesus tells a story that brings love into real life where it belongs, a story of a man who shows us what love is like so we can see it. 
and do it ourselves. I'm not going to take the time to read over the text again for time's sake. But uh, before I get into that, a little bit of background. You remember, I hope, you remember that about a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that the kingdom of Israel, after the reign of David's son Solomon, split into two. There was the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And Israel's capital became Samaria. And Judah's capital remained Jerusalem. Israel, the northern kingdom, never had a godly king. And so they were the first of the two kingdoms to be taken, as God had promised, into exile. The violent, extremely violent Assyrian empire decimated Israel. So that one of three things happened to every single Israelite. Either they were destroyed, or they were deported, or they were one of the few who were left to keep and to maintain the land. Over the ensuing decades, after Assyria had taken Israel away, they repopulated that land with captives from many other nations. So we have many nations, captives, and the few remaining, we'll say several thousand, we don't know how many, Israelites. And what did those remaining Israelites do? They did the same old thing that their idiot ancestors had done. They intermarried with all of those pagans. And not only did they marry themselves to those nations, they married themselves to those nations' gods. And pretty soon, their religion had devolved from Judaism to a syncretism of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch and paganism. And this is what they, this is, they rejected the other 34 books of the Old Testament. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim and rejected Jerusalem and They became known as, after their capital, the Samaritans. And the Jews hated them. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. I hope that your geography of the biblical Palestine is somewhat familiar to your mind because you've got Galilee, this province in the north of, of Israel, inhabited mainly by Jews, Judean Jews in this sense. And then you've got the middle province, called Samaria, where the Samaritans reside, and then the southern province of Judea. So Jesus spends the bulk of his time in Galilee in the north, in Judea in the south, sometimes crisscrossing you know, over Samaria, and sometimes he receives a good welcome, like you know, the Samaritan woman at the well, Jacob's well, and other times the villagers say, hey, you're not staying here, you're a Jew, you're going to Jerusalem, get out of here. And we saw that earlier, in fact, in chapter 9. So the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Um, the Jews said, if you would, if you would eat with a Samaritan, you might as well eat swine. Uh, and there are much worse things that they said than that. So this is how Jesus' story goes. There's a Jewish man, he says, traveling down this perilous highway from the capital of Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 17 mile trek. 
It's laden with dangers. In fact, even into the early 20th century, early 1900s, if you made this trek yourself, you were doing it at great personal risk. Because there are many places along this stretch which descends about more than 2,500 feet. There are many places where robbers and thieves can hide. And so, not surprisingly, this man is ambushed by robbers. He is stripped of his clothing and he is brutally beaten, left for dead. Now, it so happens that if this man has any good fortune left, it has just appeared in the form of a priest walking around the corner. He is saved, right? He's saved. Here comes a priest. But unthinkably, the priest, seeing him beaten, bleeding in this helpless condition, is repulsed, puts distance between himself and the victim, and crosses by on the other side. And then a Levite following. And he too keeps distance and passes by on the other side. It doesn't matter what they were thinking. Whether they were scrupulous about the law or pressed for time, it doesn't matter. Here was a man obviously desperately in need. And they ignored him. They ignored him. Now, we know how this story goes, but we're going to pretend we don't know how the story goes like the lawyer. And it, it's not hard to get in the lawyer's head. You know when you're watching a movie or a TV show? I do this all the time with Cherie, and it drives her crazy. <coughs> After we finally get all the kids in bed and Joel finally falls asleep at 10.30, <laughs> we finally have some peace and we might watch something on TV. So we'll be watching something. And I will pause it at a key point. Drives her crazy. You probably know someone who does this. Maybe you are one too. And you, you predict how it's, you know, the climax, how the plot's going to unfold or whatever. So we have these discussions. I don't think she gets... Sometimes she does get annoyed. Michael. That's what I hear. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We know this is what the lawyer's going to do. Okay? Think about it. We've seen a priest. We've seen a Levite. Who's coming next? Very often in history, throughout the Bible, the people of God were divided into three groups. We have the Levitical priests who keep the inner courts of the temple. We have those Levites who are not priests, who under priestly supervision keep the outer courts, outer complex of the temple. And then, who else? Everybody. Priests, Levites, and the regular folk. So here's what this lawyer is thinking. Okay, Jesus, I know where you're going with this. You know, it's a, it's a good plot. Um, it's smart. But it's still pretty basic and predictable. He sees in his mind's eye, no doubt, a regular Joe or Joseph. He's, you know, coming around the corner and seeing this helpless victim and coming to his aid. And Jesus is going to level condemnation at the religious elite priests and Levites in the land. That's what he's expecting to happen. Jesus is not so predictable. Who should walk around the corner and be filled with compassion and come to the man's aid? Who should be the moral hero of the story and set the pattern for Israel, for the people of God, but a despised 
Samaritan. He sees this man helpless, dying. He's filled with compassion and he rushes to his aid. Maybe he tears off strips of his own clothing and wipes away at the wounds and binds them. He pours on oil to soothe them and wine to disinfect these wounds. He lifts this man up onto his own ride and takes him to an inn. That night, the rest of that day and all that night, he takes care of the man. And in the morning, he gives the innkeeper, he pulls out of his pocket two days worth of wages, which is good enough to take care of the man for the next couple of weeks. And he says, please, take care of him. And if I owe you anything else, when I come back, I promise I will pay you what is owed. This healthy Samaritan has made this wounded Jewish man's burdens his own burdens. And though his resources, well, though he can't stay there, his resources do stay there until this burden, which in the beginning is so huge to be insurmountable it seems, steadily day by day shrinks until it's no more and this man is well again. Now, in verse 36, look back down at it. Jesus, like the good teacher he is, counters with yet another question. Which of these three, he says to the lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now the answer is obvious, right? But the question is not obvious. Because the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? In other words, who am I supposed to love? And in the story, who is the man's neighbor? Who is he supposed to love? Well, the helpless man, the victim, the Jew. But Jesus knows that's not where the heart of the problem lies. He knows this man's prejudice. He knows his racism. He knows that He has a problem in his heart of loving those who are foreigners of a a different ethnicity. And so he points the man not to the one who needs loving, as the lawyer asked and we would expect. He points not to the man who needs loving, but he points to the man who loves. He points to the man who proves to be a neighbor, who loves like Jesus, who loves anyone. Anyone. The man who proves to be a neighbor is the man who's in a foreign territory, who's on a road not his own, who not only doesn't belong there in the scene on the road or by this victim's side, but doesn't even really belong in this story at all. You wouldn't think he'd be there. You know, Jesus would... Use a Jew to be the moral hero of the story. This man doesn't belong there. But Jesus points to the one who is despised, who gives of himself to help another who can't help himself. He points to the one who helps the foreigner. And in very large part, in very large part, the ethnic point is the ethic. The ethnic point Jesus is making is the ethic. And so he asked the question, which of these three proves to be a neighbor? 
Now, the lawyer, is he has so much prejudice in his heart and his theology is so twisted and deformed, he can't even say the right answer. He can't say the Samaritan. He won't say it. In fact, you can almost hear him mumbling, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. To see Jesus' point, the lawyer asked the wrong question. He asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said to him, will you be a neighbor? Will you be a true neighbor? And that's what Jesus is putting to you and He's putting to me. He's not saying, find out who your neighbor is. He says, be the true neighbor. And be the true neighbor to anyone. Anyone whom you encounter. If you want to know who to love, then Jesus' answer is the person who needs your help. And that might be the little kid who needs a diaper change. Or it might be someone on the street who, or on the side of the road who is an obvious victim, who is helpless. He says, anyone who needs your help. And Jesus says, in essence, that if you will not love those who need you, and if you will not, and if I will not love those who aren't like you and who aren't like me, then we should have no assurance, no assurance that we will inherit eternal life on the last day when we stand before God. Daryl Bach says it very well. If we seek to restrict those we serve, we say we're drawing a circle and no one outside. We need to hear the lesson Jesus taught the lawyer. The issue is not who we may or may not serve, but serving where need exists. We are not to seek to limit who our neighbors might be. Rather, we are to be a neighbor to those whose needs we can meet. Here's a question for you. Can you love everyone, everywhere, on a practical level? No. Because you're not God. And you're not everywhere. But Jesus says you can love anyone right where you are. You can love anyone somewhere. And this is what God is calling us to do. To love anyone and to supply the need that we can supply to help those who are helpless. Now, I think we need some practical helps here. And I'm not going to give you a lot. Ryan, Nathan, and I had uh, a few encounters in Louisville with people on the streets asking us for money. And those are difficult situations. I have given, over the last several years, small amounts of money to several people in that situation. Not all, not, I don't think even close to all, but to several people in those situations. I was burned in Arlington several years ago when Shri and I were there for a few days Sorry, Gary, but it was for Blue Jays games. And uh, we went into a, a fast food place for lunch. And there was a, a man outside asking for some money. So I gave him $5, $10, something like that. And about 10 minutes later, when we were sitting down at the table eating our lunch, I noticed that very same man walking across the street into the liquor store. 
I was nice to the man. I did not help the man. Right? Truly. I was nice to him. I didn't help him. He didn't need immediate cash relief. He needed long-term rehabilitation or long-term development and training. And those were things that, as a stranger in that town, I wasn't able to offer him. I couldn't help him as he needed help. And I would very highly recommend a book to you called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor. It's a book that's in our library. It's in the back room there on one of those book displays. No, Not hard to find. If this topic interests you, and um, I, I hope that it does, because what we don't realize is that there are many kinds of poverty, starting with our spiritual poverty, and which we all share in common, and there are many kinds of help, many kinds of reliefs, immediate, long-term, whether it's rehabilitation or development or whatever. And so this book, written from a very solid theology and Christian worldview, is something that I would recommend. It will help you. But back to this text as we wrap up. The point that Jesus makes to the lawyer, he makes several times in different ways throughout the New Testament. Those who belong to Jesus love those who aren't like them. Those who belong to Jesus love those who are not like them. And if you do not love those who are not like you, whether it's a different ethnicity or economic status or what have you, no matter what their morality is, notice the Samaritan doesn't go to the Jew. Hey, tell me your theology real quick. Do you believe in the last 34 books of the Old Testament? You do? Okay, forget it. I'm not helping you. You know, he doesn't do that. We love those who are not like us. Because that's what a neighbor is. That's what being a true neighbor means. And that was our condition. And God intervened. Jesus is the true neighbor from the far country in a place where he is despised. Who helps the spiritually destitute on the side of the road. The helpless victims who are in fact spiritually dead, who do not have a chance in themselves of making it all the way to glory. And as the true neighbor from the far country, he lays down his life in death that we may live and be with him forever. So what kind of corrupted, twisted, and deformed theology would it be if we who have received so great salvation, would dare not love those who are not like us. That would be of hell. That would be of the devil. Never did God help someone so unlike Him in character, so far gone and so dead, as when He stooped down and helped me by the sacrifice of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, He calls us, not as the grounds of our justification, but as the proof that we are justified and alive in Christ. He calls us to be the true neighbor who, like Christ, love those who aren't like them.
and who aren't like him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, though we have your spirit, though we are born again, spiritually alive in Christ, saved by the gospel, and under the preaching and the teaching of your word every Lord's day, and although we come into it again and again, because of our flesh, thinking like a true neighbor is so unnatural to us. It is so far from us that we are in desperate need of this reminder. And we are in desperate need that you plant this truth deep within our hearts, that you help us to think like Christ and to follow the example of the one who loves those deeply who are not like him. Father, you sent Jesus and you sent him to meet every need that you called him to meet and that has meant that he has met every need that we have. Not only the need to be saved from the penalty of our sin, but also its power, saved from its presence and glory and he has met the need, Father, to not give in to the sin of prejudice and not give in to the sin of loving only those who are like us, but rather, Lord, to overcome the temptation and be that counterculture, that new way of life, this new race upon the earth that loves like Christ. Jesus has met that need. He is enough for us. He is our help and our strength. And we pray, Father, that again, once again, you would fill us with the spirit of your Son to love as we have been loved. And Lord, we will not obey perfectly, but help us to obey truly, together, all the way to glory. In Jesus' name and for his praise, amen.